Well, again, good afternoon. Well, today we are starting a new book. This book has some significance to me personally. When I was a, a sophomore in high school, God opened my eyes to believe the gospel, and shortly after then, my, my youth pastor said, you know, let's study a book of the Bible together. And He asked me to pick it. He said, pick anything that, that is interesting to you, whatever you want to study. And at that time, I knew absolutely nothing of the Bible, nothing at all. So I began to flip through, and I saw this strange-looking word, and I thought, let's do Ecclesiastes, and he corrected me, it's Ecclesiastes. Thankfully, I didn't go a few pages further, we would have been in Song of Solomon, and that would have been more awkward. <laughs> he did tell me it was an odd choice, but we went ahead and we studied it, and so it's a fun thing to come to this book years later to, to preach it, because it's the very first book of the Bible I ever read. It's an Old Testament book, and I admit I am much more comfortable preaching from the New Testament, the epistles and, and such. It is a, just an easier place to preach from, but this is good for us. Uh, it's good for us because we're committed to, to preaching what Acts 20, 27 calls the whole counsel of God. That is all of Scripture. It's also an incredible book for us as a young church, as we seek to live with meaning, as we seek to live in a world that seems to lack meaning, or understanding of meaning, as we wrestle with these competing concepts of, of what constitutes living with purpose. And as we interact with people who God has placed in our life, and as we seek to carry the gospel out into our communities. Now, I admit, again, it's a strange book. It asks the questions that people ask themselves when they're staring up at the stars, rather than absentmindedly at the television screen. It asks the deep questions that we're honestly very often afraid to even talk about, those questions that creep into our minds when we, when we face doubts, those questions that take our breath away, those questions that come from an honest evaluation of the world we live in, the, the world after the fall, a world full of sin and sinners, but also those questions whose answers give you reason to get up tomorrow. It answers the real things that, that really matter because nothing is more encouraging in our life, more motivating, more freeing than walking through life with real purpose, real reason for being here. So let's read the first 11 verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll begin this journey together. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things yet to be among those whom come after. The grass withers and the flower fades. 
Let's pray. Lord, life is so fragile. And yet, here we are. You have sustained us to live in this time, in this place, at this moment. Give us faith to find purpose as you have defined it in your word. Draw our minds into these deeper questions, but keep us from despair as we understand this life is a beautiful gift. Thank you for giving meaning to our existence. Thank you for the cross, for your word. Enlighten our minds to understand it this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author, is considered one of the most accomplished authors in modern history. Even if you've never read his writings, you've likely heard of his novel, War and Peace, as well as Anna Karenina, which I'm not sure I pronounced right. Yet, even with this great success, in the field which was his absolute deepest passion, writing, he found that his life lacked meaning. He found general human existence to be absurd. Near the end of his life, he wrote a very short book called Confession. In that, he had this to say. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man from the fullest child to the wisest elder. It is the question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I found out by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? It's not an original question. What is the meaning of life? It's a question, though, that we all must get to at some point in our life. Most of you college students have probably been asked before, why did you come to K-State? Why, why are you in college at all? To get a degree. What if I go Socrates on you and I ask, you know, why do you need a degree? To get a job. Why do you need a job? You might say, well, to provide for myself, to provide for my family, to contribute to society. Well, why do you need to do all that? Why does any of that matter at all? I think sometimes, even in these questions, we just want to get to the next stage. But at some point in life, we'll find that the next stage is death, and when we get to that point, we need to know that we have lived with real purpose. This is a book which takes the question of purpose head on. That's why it's so strange. Uh, let's consider a little background about this book. Along with Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes is considered in the genre of wisdom literature. It deals with everyday life, full of advice, often told using poetic verse and play on words and metaphors and parallelism, uh, really all those terms that only English professors use to explain how the author is using words to say something that the words don't actually say. At least that's the way I see it. The author of Ecclesiastes is never stated by name, but based on the first line, the first verse, it is traditionally believed to be King Solomon because King Solomon is the son of David. He was a king in Jerusalem. He was known to be both wealthy and extraordinarily wise. If it's not King Solomon, it's certainly someone writing from the perspective as if they are King Solomon. Regardless of who the author is, though, it's part of the canon, and thus the word of God. It is for the people of God, and we have much to learn from it. So let's start with verse 1. Solomon here refers to himself as the preacher. This is from the, the Hebrew word kuhileth meaning someone who assembles a group, any sort of group. And 
The title of this book, and this is kind of confusing, I'll try my best to explain it, but it comes from the transliteration, that's where you take another language and turn it into English, of a Greek word, even though this was originally written in Hebrew, but the Greek word for the, for the name preacher, which is Ecclesiastes. Solomon is preaching to warn the people of Israel that apart from God, they will find no gain, no purpose from anything in life. And it's a very emotional appeal. He wants the reader to feel complete emptiness when lived outside of God's design. He also desires the reader to find contentment with the life that God has given, the gift of life. And as we read through this book, I think you're going to find something interesting, that Israel around 930 B.C., when this writ was written, was quite similar to our cultural today. As Sidney Gradinus has said, they lived far from God, but close to the marketplace. What he means is their, their concern was their own wealth, uh, their own pleasure, their own success. Now, as we go through this, keep in mind that the preacher is speaking to the assembled. He's speaking to Israel, not to some atheist society, not to some secular gathering, but to people who profess that God exists, and yet who are living in a way that, that does not agree with what they profess. So now, verse 2 is where things really begin. It's also one of the more well-known verses in this book. With it, Solomon quickly makes clear that he is a realist, or as optimists might call him, a pessimist. I think he's a realist. In the Hebrew, this verse is only eight words long. Get this in your mind. It's only eight words long. And yet, five of those words, more than half of the words, are the word vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. See, there are half-glass-full people, and there are half-glass-empty people. And then in this moment, we see Solomon. He takes this long look at life with much experience, and he concludes, not only is the glass half-empty, there is no water in the glass. There is no glass at all. Everything is complete vanity. And you wonder, where do you go from there? This term vanity shows up in this book 38 times in Ecclesiastes. It, it comes from this word havel. It's often translated as meaninglessness, temporary, empty, smoke. The most literal, literal understanding of the word is vapor or breath. It, it's what your breath looks like outside today. You can see it. It comes out. There's this, this steam, and it's there for a moment, and then it's gone. It's the same word we find in Psalm 39.5 where it says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all man stands as a mere breath. That's that word havel. Same one we're seeing in Ecclesiastes here. And not only does a vapor exist for just a short moment of time, but if you were to try to reach out and grab hold of your breath, what happens? There's nothing to grasp onto. There's no substance to it. And it leads to this frustration. It seems to, to lead to no purpose at all. And it's similar to what we see in James 4.14 where he writes, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. To further his point, he's, he's saying that everything is vanity of vanities. Just like holy of holies means the most holy place in the entire temple, and song of songs means the best of all songs, so vanity of vanity means the most futile of all futile things, the most vain of all vain things. And as this book goes on, we're going to see that he specifically lists the following things as vanity, and it's an interesting list. 
He says, every effort is vanity. The fruit of our labors is vanity. Pleasure is vanity. Life is vanity. Youth is vanity. Success is vanity. Wealth is vanity. Desire is vanity. Silliness is vanity. Popularity is vanity. Injustice is vanity. All future events are vanity. And of course, as he's saying here, everything is vanity. And then in verse 3, he jumps right to the details of the life we live. He asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Toils, of course, work. And this word gain is a business term. It's asking what's left over. After everything, what, what is left over? What is the profit from all the work that we do? And specifically, all the work that we do under the sun. And this phrase, under the sun, is a major theme throughout this book. We're going to find that it's used 38 times in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. To keep that in mind, it's used zero times in the other 65 books of the Bible. It's not a statement of, of living a secular life. It's often thought that, but, or living a life apart from God, but rather it's a term for living in a world that is drenched in sin after the fall. The world that is shared by atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Hindus and secular humanists and Christians alike. The world we experience when we walk out these doors today. It's a poetic way of saying the life we now live as God carries out the curse of the fall, just as he promised he would do in Genesis 3. It's the dash on our gravestones from, from birth to death. And so what is the answer to the question that he asked here in verse 3? What do we profit from all of our work in this fallen world? And the answer to this curse-filled question has really already been answered in verse 2. Nothing. We gain nothing. See, he's pushing us to see what so many people in history have discovered through their own experience. That apart from God, we will find no meaning to life. We will find only vanity, only frustration. And verse 4 then moves along and says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. By putting it in this order, the emphasis is on the replacement of a generation, because typically we'd say it the other way, right? A generation comes and a generation goes. He's pointing out this, this cycle of human life as one generation just replaces another, and yet everything remains the same. And verse 5 through 7, we see the same cycle in the natural world. He's, he's showing us that the curse of the fall extends to all of creation, not just us as humans. It's this reputation over and over again with no gain, no profit. It says the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around the wind goes the wind. And on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The water is endlessly flowing to them. I mean, we know better today, right? But you expect, they would have expected for the seas to fill up, and yet they never do. He may even be thinking of the Dead Sea, which is nearby. See, the Jordan River and a few other smaller rivers flow into the Dead Sea. It's the lowest sea in the entire planet. There's nothing that runs out of the Dead Sea. In theory, that should fill up pretty darn quick. And yet, even the Dead Sea never fills up. 
course, like I said, we know this because of evaporation, but you can see the image of work, of, of our constantly pouring into something which results in no gain. So much movement, so much activity, and nothing is accomplished. That's frustrating. That's vanity of vanities, even in the natural realm. And then in verse 8, we see a bit of a summary. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This all things is referring to the cycles of of our life and of nature. The weariness then is is what comes from even contemplating these ideas, of of seeking to make sense out of all of these cycles. And this endless effort is also in our, our speaking and in our seeing and our hearing. See, we can never speak so much that all has been said. Sometimes we know that too well. We can never see so much that all has been seen. We can never hear so much so that all has been heard. In verse 9, we see further the repetitive nature of the world. Verse 9 says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sea. Ironically, if you look up who said this well-known quote, those who forget the past are, are doomed to repeat it. You'll find it's been accredited to a fair number of people, everyone from Jesse the Body Ventura to the author of Lemony Snicket. That's a little late in history to be right. It's been reworded in many ways and all to say basically the same thing. The official credit, if you look into it, goes to Harvard alum George Santana in 1905, who actually said it this way. He said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The fact that he gets official credit for this this quote is even more ironic, since he seems to have forgotten that the Irish philosopher Edmund Burke, 176 years before him, wrote this, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Come on, that's funny. (laughs) Yet it's the American Kurt von Gutt the author of Slaughterhouse-Five, who brings us back to the truth of Ecclesiastes when he wrote, I've got news for Mr. Santana. We're doomed to repeat the past no matter what. That's what it is to be alive. And that's what Solomon is telling us here in verses 10 and 11. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor Will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after? Now, I expect it took you about half a second after hearing that to think to yourself, airplanes are new. The Internet's new. My phone is new. Yes, it's true. We've seen technology advance. We've seen advancements in all sorts of areas. In fact, we've seen technology advance in very quick ways in our time period. I found it funny a few days ago, uh, Laura told our nine-year-old son, there used to be no cell phones. And Beckham's response was saying, that would be horrible if you lived way back then. (laughs) Yeah, way, way back then. So you need to understand that there were advancements in Solomon's day as well. There were things that people saw and said, look, this is new. What he says here is more of a general statement. Babies have been born in the past. Nations have become world powers in the past. Peace treaties have been signed in the past. Technological leaps have occurred in the past. Medical advancements have happened in the past. People still work to make money. Uh, Our putting 
hope in the work of our hands or the advancement of humanity has all happened before. Every generation thinks that they're more enlightened than the one before it. Every generation thinks finally we're significant. And the truth is, under the sun, we will be forgotten. All of us. I think about it. I've always been amazed by this. What was the name of your grandfather? Mine was Alexander. What was the name of his father? Uh, your great-grandfather. Most of you can probably name that. Mine was, was James, and his wife's name was Grace. I didn't know that until I asked my mom that this week. You go a little further. What was the name of your great-grandfather's father? I have no idea. My mom couldn't even give me that information. I'm sure I could go to some genealogy place and look it up and find this information. And yet, the point is that your great-great-grandchildren will not even know what your name is, most likely. So what's the point in all this toil? All the working, the creating, the advancing, the worrying about our jobs, the, the grades, everything we're doing. If all your life is being lived, then if that's all your life is for, then the depressing answer to this question is nothing. What we'll see in this book is that life ought not be lived apart from God. But as we study Ecclesiastes, we must read it as Christians. We read it through the lens of the New Testament as those who have known and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see that this life is a gift of God. That there are pleasures to be enjoyed in this life and it's good for us to enjoy them. We should also know even at this point, even if our work is nothing new, even if our work is going to be forgotten, even if our work has no ultimate profit, the same is not true for the work of our Savior. His work will be remembered forever. In fact, as we partake in the Lord's Supper today, as we do so every week, we're remembering the work of Jesus Christ, and we are remembering the profit of that work, namely, that our sins are forgiven. So let us remember that the work we do in His name and for His glory has real purpose. Jesus in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The message is simple. To live life with purpose, we need to store up treasure in heaven. That's why your life can have purpose, whether you are wealthy or poor, whether in your area of work, whether you are considered a success or a failure, uh, there's something of more lasting value than what is often considered a, a well-lived life in our culture. And our response to the van vanity of life and work should not be to stop living or to stop working. I know there's a temptation to think that way. Rather, our response be should be to subjugate our lives and our work under the Lordship of Christ under the values of the kingdom of God, under the purposes that he has called us to. I'll close a little early today. You like that today, don't you? I'll close by reading 1 Corinthians 15.58, uh, where we learn that in Christ our work can have real and lasting value. There it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, you have numbered our days, but we have no idea how many are left. Empower us by your Spirit to live each for your glory. May our lives be ordinary as we find satisfaction in Christ and as we experience joy and fresh air and smiles and comforting the hurting and the joy of living. God, thank you for the life you've called us to. May you be glorified by our lives, both in our pursuit of righteousness and our Holy Spirit-granted repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.